0: Today, we are going to try to take on an ambitious task, to say the least. We're going to try to attempt to understand, analyze, and compare the major ancient Greek philosophies all in one podcast. Of course, it would take someone who is both supremely knowledgeable about philosophy as well as gifted in explaining it in order to achieve this task, but thankfully we have none other than Greg Sadler joining us today. Hi, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom, a site dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. You can now find us, along with our free newsletter, at classicalwisdom.substack.com. Today's Classical Wisdom Speaks podcast is with Greg Sadler, the president and co-founder of Reason.io, editor of Stoicism Today, and adjunct professor in philosophy and humanities at the Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design, as well as lecturer in philosophy and business ethics at Carthage College. But before we begin our tour of ancient philosophies, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom members who make this podcast possible If you'd like to become a society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.substack.com and subscribe. You can also help us out by subscribing to our podcast channel. Just hit that red button subscribe to get your monthly dose of the classics. Now on to ancient philosophies. How do they really compare? Are some more applicable to our modern lives than others? Well, thank you, Greg, so much for for joining me today, Um, and I'm going to do something a little bit different with you because you are so knowledgeable on so many different types of philosophy, and a lot of times when I talk to people, it gets really niche, and sometimes there is huge, I mean, a lot of times there's huge value in that, and I have learned about how the, you know, archaic Greece buried their war dead, you know, at the very extreme, um, but it does mean sometimes people can miss, you know, the forest, the trees, and sometimes it's really, really nice to take that step back and see philosophy from a much wider angle on, uh, and from a very further perspective. So um, considering your, your, your knowledge of all the different ancient philosophies, we are going to try to do, I think, kind of an impossible task. <laughs> <laughs> And try to really try to get a bit of an overview of the ancient Greek philosophies. So maybe if you could start us off with some of some of your favorites, some of the most influentials, and see if we can kind of cover the the kind of the gist of the overview. Sure. And then and then we can kind of do some more fun, comparative delving into.
1: Yeah, that sounds that sounds good. And it is kind of a, a big task because things don't f- fit neatly into each other, like having a bunch of shelves where everything, like, you know, here's the Stoic box and here's the Epicurean box, because each of these is, um, you know, talking to the others and, and sort of modifying themselves in the process. But, I mean, in general, we can say, if we're talking about Greek philosophy, which then we can extend into, you know, Roman philosophy as well, um, you've got, you know, what we typically call the pre-Socratic age and it's unfortunate that we we don't have a lot of texts from them we know about these important thinkers like democritus or parmenides or heraclitus but we only have like little bits of what they wrote and a lot of it is coming to us from from later philosophers who thought it was worth saving so when it comes to things that are kind of you know more systematic the kind of stuff i think that that your listeners would be more interested in it's really from the time of socrates onward and and Socrates is this absolutely central figure in that he he gets interpreted in in multiple ways so everybody knows that you know Plato was Socrates' student and Aristotle was was Plato's student so you've got kind of a lineage there but you know Plato wasn't the only person studying with Socrates so you get the cynic school arising from we think Antisthenes who's who's another guy associated with Socrates. And we have the first hedonist uh, school, uh, the Cyrenaic school, um, which is going to get replaced basically by the Epicureans coming with another student of Socrates, Aristippus. And so we get all these, think of Socrates as like a guy who comes in, you know, he's an ideas man, right? Maybe you've heard this. Somebody comes in, they don't actually have all the the work done. They're like, yeah, you go work on this. You go work on this. You have research projects. And so he's not doing quite that. But but there are these, uh, you know, schools and lineages that are coming off of him. So Plato founds his academy um, you have the the cynics um doing their thing, you have the Cyrenaics, and you know, Aristotle is going to study with Plato, but then he's gonna diverge from him and found the Lyceum with his good friend Theophrastus, who is an Athenian and can actually own land there. So we've already got several different schools there. And then Epicurus is an outlier. Epicurus isn't connected with Socrates at all. And he winds up, after getting kicked out of another city, being in Athens with his buddies and establishing this garden. So now at this point, I think we've got five different schools. Uh, And then there's the skeptics, right? And there's this guy Pyro that we hear about. And he seems to have been pretty hardcore. You know, like there's stories that um, he was so committed to the idea that we don't really know anything that he would walk up to the edge of a cliff and his students would have to pull him back. So, you know, uh, he's at least consistent. And then, you know, Plato's Academy later on will take this skeptical turn as well. So when you hear about academic skepticism, that's a particular period. And each of these like now we're talking about six traditions, right? The original Platonic, the Aristotelian. Um, oh, we haven't talked about the Stoics yet. That's why I'm, I'm kind of mixing this up. The Stoics, you know, originate a little bit later and they're kind of blending together Cynic and um, Platonic and, and some other minor school stuff into a new synthesis. And so we've got each of these major schools and each of them is putting forth their own sets of ideas they 're arguing with each other from time to time, sometimes incorporating stuff from each other so if you 're a stoic and you think, well, you know maybe the the Aristotelians got something right you might you might draw upon them and bring it in and then you know your your fellow Stoics can get mad at you and say oh you're not you're not a real stoic, and we get these these controversies going in there, but each of these schools is going to produce um You could call it like a a coherent way of thinking and living that's going to go on for centuries and some more popular than others. You know, like by the time that we're looking at, you know, the Roman Empire, the Aristotelians are, you know, they're important, but they're not really that they're not captivating people like the Stoics and the the. Epicureans and the skeptics and then later with the revival the cynics are doing or you know the neoplatonists um, but each of them you know each of them has something worth looking into and and learning about and each has its own vocabulary you can say that uh, a beginner needs to learn just like if you're studying musical instruments right you know if you're learning the drum you learn a, a certain vocabulary that has to do with percussion and if you're learning the clarinet there's other things to learn right but but it still winds up making music
0: together. I wanted to say I like your your analogy of the of the music school and it's funny when I was talking to William B. Irvin um, about the Stoics he was saying it's sort of like setting up a martial arts school that everybody's mm. going to have it a little bit differently and you know you, you kind of do a bit of a mishmash and um, I think that's really valuable and, and I like the idea of Socrates sort of starting it off as like the delegator of philosophies, like here you go, off you go, that's wonderful. Um, and and so we have all these different schools and, and like you said they've got their different vocabularies, they're going to have their, their pros and cons and I personally am I'm, I'm a proponent of something I like to call the art of cherry picking. That, you know, each one they're gonna have some really good ideas. And our job in a way is, is to find them, to find the good, the good juicy bits. So maybe like what maybe we should start at the beginning. We can go with Socrates. What would you say, like one of the most valuable tools that comes from Socrates? Well,
1: you know, I'll I'll tell you two and one of them will be something that gets attributed to socrates all the time but gets people in trouble and that's this idea that socrates is wise because he knows he doesn't know anything which is definitely not the case socrates knows all sorts of things if you read between the lines and the dialogues it's it's clear that he gets his audience to agree to him about that but one of the things that he does do over and over again is is lead people into what the Greeks called aporia, which is sort of like going into, um, you know, you're driving down a road and you get to one of those circular things and you can't you can't get through, right? There's like houses around. We call them cul-de-sacs up here. And um, then you have to back out and like figure out how to get around. And Socrates was very good at showing people where, they thought they knew something, but then when they were called upon to explain it, they would get into these, these cul-de-sacs or operia, opereia in, in the Greek. And, um, you know, a lot of people looked at that as a very negative thing. I don't like to be shown up. This is part of how he got himself killed. <laughs> but it's 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 really helpful, you know, to figure out that you don't really know what you're talking about because then you can go out of that feeling of puzzlement or frustration and start getting yourself onto the the right track i mean you've probably known people who they get themselves lost and they won't ask anybody for directions then and you know well they stay lost (laughs) so so i think that's something very
0: important from socrates you're totally right like just saying i know that i know nothing is is kind of an oversimplification. and i think one of the better ways of explaining it is I do not claim to know that which I do not know. And, right. and that right. is a very crucial difference because you can say, I, I do know the things I do know, but I do not know that which I do not know. And that kind of idea, um, which I'd like to maybe explore a bit with the, the skeptics and such is the idea of suspending judgment and to acknowledge yeah. that you don't know. Yeah. What would you say is maybe one of your favorite ones from Aristotle moving on? Or maybe maybe we should go from, Uh, Socrates to Plato. And I know the Socratic Platonic issue is always there. But what what would you say is your favorite from Plato?
1: You know, um, the Platonist tradition is very broad. You've got like Plato's school itself with Plato and and all the dialogues that he writes that are that are very important. And then you get this this thing called middle Platonism when his school shifted back from the skepticism uh, that it had gone into back to like taking Plato seriously and and Plutarch would probably be one of the most important people for that and he wrote a lot you know and then um, there's you know what they call Neoplatonism and each of these is like you know a, a reinterpretation of Plato's original work and one of the things that I think is really really helpful you know, when we talk about these platonic forms, right, and, and you don't have to necessarily believe that platonic forms exist or anything like that, because I, I certainly don't. But <clears throat> one of the, the points that Plato makes about it is that anything that doesn't measure up to what a platonic form would be, so like, say, justice in our world— or courage, or, or you know, any of the, the cardinal virtues is going to be imperfect by comparison to that, that form. And you see people all the time playing gotcha, you know, like in social media, you'll say, well, this is something just, this is something right, this social arrangement or this policy. And then they'll be like, but actually, you know, they're always using that term, actually, that's like the sign that they're, they're, you know, going to be opposing you on this and they'll point out something that is is probably true but it's totally tangential you know so you could say well um this policy uh you know to alleviate homelessness you know it's right, going to make some impact on on the people that are stuck out on the street which is a terrible place to be uh, especially here in the winter in in milwaukee and somebody will say well that's not going to like totally eliminate homelessness and you'd be like well it's of course not it's not the platonic form of like justice being enacted here on earth but it is it is worth doing you know um and we can say that about any anything that people idealize right so i think that's a helpful it's not something that plato in his dialogues talks about a lot but i think it's something you can draw out of the platonic mindset
0: yeah and i i like um i think one of the things that plato does for philosophy too is that he makes it very readable and enjoyable oh, true, yeah. and, you know, it makes it accessible as a, you can actually sit down and read the symposium and enjoy yourself.
1: Well, you picked the best out of the Platonic dialogues, right there. Right, so for that, because my students really love the Symposium because you know it's it's about love, which everybody is interested in, and you've got these these sequence of speeches. So it's kind of broken up. It's not it's not as dry as some of the dialogues. Um, I do think that the translator plays a big role. If you get one of these Oxfordy kind of translators from the early twentieth century, I know my students have a hard time reading and relating to it whereas more contemporary translations they they can you know they'll they'll enjoy it more and then they'll stick with it
0: and i think that is a very good reason for advocating for new translations all the time uh and for translations from a wider range of people backgrounds because you end up liberating the classics in a way from previous translations which can have their own biases um so yeah i think that's an excellent point if, if you if you read a book by plato and you're not enjoying it try to pick another translation first before giving up
1: yeah sometimes you read those those english oxfordy translations and you're like i'm not quite sure what slang word they're using here what this actually means you know and so if if you and i are having trouble with that you can guarantee that somebody coming to a completely fresh um, without the background knowledge is going to be totally confused about what's being said.
0: And, and so from traversing from the very readable to maybe the last readable, um, maybe we should go into Aristotle. And uh... sure,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not a <laughs> stylist like Plato is, that's for sure.
0: He's, he's thorough, though. You know, there's there's value in that. <laughs>
1: You know, I'll actually tell you something. I don't want this to be too much of a digression, but when I was in college and then the first part of graduate school, I thought Aristotle was so stupid. You know, I would read the the text that we were assigned and I was like, what is is the point of this, you know? And of course, the problem was with me, not with Aristotle. Um, I thought everything good that he says, it's basically common sense and then the rest is just kind of silly stuff. And then when I started paying closer attention to it and interacting with people who took Aristotle seriously uh, it was it was sort of like having a vista open up in front of you and you're like holy crap look at look at all this stuff and then when you start reading them in Greek and you see the connections between the different texts that are often um, concealed by the translations then you see all these interconnections and it becomes a very robust um, philosophical point of view and I, you know I'm, I'm actually a big fan of Aristotle um, I mean, I wouldn't call myself an Aristotelian because I think, like you, I'm more of what we would call an eclectic, you know, drawing on multiple traditions and bringing them together. But Aristotle's definitely a central one. Um, and, you know, if we're thinking about, like, what are some of the key ideas, the doctrine of the mean, right? Um, thinking about the kind of characteristics character traits that we want to have and then seeing them as not just like finding the middle position but thinking about all the stuff that goes into it like you know where he says it's difficult to get angry with the right person at the right time to the right degree for the right amount you know of time those are all in that that mean and thinking about those things um, we're more likely to get ourselves into that position. And not just with anger, but with justice and generosity and being friendly with other people and all all these other things that we care about.
0: One of my favorite things I think about Aristotle is the ideas of friendship. Obviously, the Nicomachean ethics is kind of a big one. Um, and, And a simple but really wonderful concept, I think, and for both friendship and love, is just identifying that there are so many different ways that those terms can be used and that those relationships can be understood. And, you know, because we use the word sort of willy-nilly, okay, friends, we're friends, our friends at work, our friends at home, our family, friends, you know, and by being able to sort of categorize our different types of friendships, um, I think we can more accurately determine which friendships are of greater value than others and which ones demand more time and attention Um, and reward. And likewise, which friendships are maybe even friendships we shouldn't be investing in.
1: Or we should be like letting, you know, laying down limits or um, not allowing ourselves to get exploited. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people get into romantic relationships and they, you know, they're like, oh, I found the one, you know, and the odds of that are pretty low at any given time. Right. And then they, they try to, take their relationship, which is what Aristotle would call a friendship of pleasure, right? People like spending time with each other, um, you know, they have common interests, maybe having sex or something like that. But it's not necessarily the highest kind of friendship, you know? Um, and they they try to make the highest kind of relationship out of that and then they wind up being miserable because it doesn't work out, you know?
0: Yeah, and and just being able to identify that is kind of key and, and yeah. it's one of those hard lessons. It's kind of like one of those lessons that you learn like in your late twenties or thirties compared to when you're in college and you just try to be friends with everybody. And, you know, and True. anybody who's gone through that process knows, knows exactly I think what I'm speaking about. Um, but to continue with our very ambitious mission here of, of trying to kind of do a whole overview of, of all of them. I think the next on our uh, somewhat chronological philosophical um, from Socrates, Plato, Aristotle uh, would be maybe the Cynics?
1: Yeah, and there we're kind of moving back to the time of Socrates. I mean, there's some controversy about whether the Cynic school had the kind of coherence to it that has been read into it i 'm perfectly happy to say Antisthenes was a cynic and then Diogenes and then Crates and all these people and you know one of the key ideas that they had was um social conventions are just that social conventions, and they they get in the way of living a truly natural human life and the cynics you know they thought pretty highly of themselves they're the heralds of god coming to give us you know examples of what's possible and they were never they were never like a a huge school because it's not the kind of thing that's easy to you know put together a a coherent program everyone's got to kind of figure it out along the way and it, it does involve a lot of asceticism and um also you know embarrassment and Having people say mean things about you and all that, but it it, it um you know it it went on and there were cynics. Um, there was even like a big revival in the the early part of the the Christian era, um, not directly connected to Christianity, but you know, these these people would go around and claim to be cynic philosophers, and and some of them were, and some of them probably weren't. You know, we find. That in Epictetus' time, you know, he's he says, if you want to be a cynic, it's gonna be really, really tough. So don't like make believe. There were people making believe. And then later on we've got this uh this emperor, you know, who who shifts back from Christianity to to Greek pagan philosophy. And um he he has a piece where he's criticizing the people who are pretending to be cynics who aren't really measuring up to it. So there was always, you know, kind of kind of some controversy, you could say, in in how to live the cynic life, but it's still going on today, you know. Uh, there's been a revival uh, in recent times. There's uh, Facebook groups and literature out there that you can find about how to live a cynic life. I kind of think that there's some affinities with minimalism in the present uh, and ancient cynicism. What works for extraordinary individuals can't necessarily be generalized to to what everybody else ought to do, you know. So sometimes those extraordinary cases—I mean, like Diogenes could live in a, a barrel. Okay, that's fine, right? That doesn't mean that all of us should live in a barrel, you know.
0: Yeah, we would. That would be a step backwards, I think, if all society were living in barrels. Like, it. I yeah, quite it's, true. And and I guess this kind of gets to the point where you were saying about being an eclectic, and and my saying about mm. cherry picking is that. Um, you know there's not always universality to every single one of these ideas you can take the idea and apply it and see where it's practical where it's useful um and there's definitely times when you you know hear about Diogenes that you like you know his his interactions i mean whether they're apocryphal or not with with alexander the great and such this guy is cool i'm i'm glad somebody did it but i wouldn't do that (laughs)
1: He's cool, but he's also kind of a jerk. You know, I, I, you think about what it would be like to be friends with that guy. And I, I had some people who were like that, you know, in high school and, and college. And eventually you don't want to hang around with them because they're always trying to, like, you know, hold the mirror up to society or be unconventional for the sake of being unconventional. And after a while, that just gets kind of old, you know. Plus, they're always begging, you know. They, they're always taking advantage of, of your generosity. so.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe the, the key point is uh and what you were saying before about finding moderation and means, like that's right. yeah, yeah. Is a much more universal concept.
1: So that's a good that's a good segue into the Epicureans. The Epicureans were uh kind of an interesting bunch. I mean, we use it now to mostly focus on like high-end food and drink. Um but they were they were much more in favor of a simple, sustainable, that that's the word that we would use today, a sustainable life, you know,
0: and friendship was central for them too. So rather than yeah. fancy stuff, it's like that really perfectly temperatured cup of coffee that you might mm-hmm. get on the weekend when you're not rushed. Like that's yeah. like an epicurean pleasure.
1: That's a good, um, more than an example, sort of like a paradigm for it assuming you like coffee right maybe some of your listeners don't (laughs) they can't relate to that but you know exactly yeah whatever it is that you're into drinking um and it doesn't you know it doesn't cost you that much you don't have to like go across town and fight traffic to get to that that perfect spot you can just walk you know down the street and and find it Somebody selling it that would be that would be what epicureans would be for yeah
0: Simple pleasures. Um, And so you were saying you were going to introduce um, friendship in Epicureans. Mm.
1: Epicurus actually thinks that friendship is one of the um, best things for us. You know, and all these schools really um, stress friendship as as central, that we have a social nature. Um, and, And the Epicureans were kind of posed with a problem which is they value everything in terms of like the, the pleasures or pains that it's going to create. So you could say, well, you're, you're only hanging out with your friends because you get pleasure from them, and then as soon as they're not pleasant, you're going to throw them over. And so the Epicureans had to explain how that wasn't the case, and they, they came up with a couple different lines of reasoning like, well, after you hang out with somebody for a long time, you start to get you know accustomed to them and their happiness becomes part of your happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, they they did have a rather implausible idea that Cicero talks about where um, the wise make an agreement to be friends with each other. It sounds very, very complicated and, and prone to misunderstanding, so I, I don't really buy that one <laughs> myself. I, I, I think it's more likely that, you know, you indulge in certain uh, pleasant things with people and then you uh, come to associate that with them, you know?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to to see friendship pop up again and again. Um, I mean, I guess Socrates. Well, Socrates had his friends. They tried to convince him to run away. Exactly. Um, that's that's right. Yeah, himself. yeah.
1: Yeah, Socrates' friends were willing to like uh, subvert justice and bribe the guards and set up a shop for him in some other city. So I mean, that's. That's a pretty strong commitment. And then, of course, you know, in the Phaedo, they're, they're all unhappy because the poor guy's dying, you know, and he's stuck having to explain how it's not so bad um, that he's dying to them. Yeah, he even has, you know, some people sent away.
0: Yeah, yeah so um, we, we've talked quite a few bit about Epicurus and, and Cenex, but uh, we, I feel like we kind of jumped over the Stoics a little bit um would you say and one thing i think is something i like to address to people is that stoicism the modern term makes it seem very isolated Mm. but actually the stoics were very pro-community speaking of friendship and stoicism
1: yeah um the stoics thought that that's part of our our human nature our rational nature is that we we ought to have relationships with other people and you know, try to grow within them and and um you know do what we what 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 they would call our duties or appropriate actions towards those that we're connected with um and there there's so much to stoicism Seneca talks about um stoicism as being this sort of complicated network of of ideas, and I think that's quite true. You know, something that you just brought up before is this modern conception, we often call that lowercase s stoicism, you know, the stiff upper lip, they say, or being a tough guy or that sort of thing. And that's that's not really stoicism. In, in many cases, that's anti-stoic. Um, whereas capital S stoicism, um, that's a whole philosophy that you can mm-hmm. try to live your life in accordance with and gradually assimilate and make part of yourself, Um and there's a lot of great things about it. You know, like, I, I, as I was mentioning, I like Aristotle quite a bit, and I also like the Platonist tradition quite a bit. But there's a lot that I I think the Stoics have quite right. You know, even on things where I don't think they're 100% right, they, they have a lot to offer. Like, for example, anger. The Stoics had a zero-tolerance idea about anger. Anger is always bad. I don't quite buy that. I think that maybe Aristotle gets some of it right, but the Stoics – Boy, do they have a lot of practices that we can use to work on our temper, you know. So they're they're awfully helpful in many ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a bit of a renaissance, I think, of stoicism of yeah. late. Um, and it's been growing popularity and i keep saying again and again i feel like it's the it's the gateway drug into ancient philosophy um which i'm i'm happy about because you kind of you see the appeal the practicality the applicability of an ancient philosophy and then you go hey wait this is kind of this is more than just a life hack what else can they offer um but stoicism does give people a lot
1: yeah, and I and I, I like where you're going with that. I think there's some people who are like looking for a singular life philosophy and they want to find something and then just stick with that, right? And that can be okay provided that life philosophy is adequate to the problems that you're gonna run into. I kind of suspect that stoicism is definitely like top tier, but it doesn't it doesn't have everything, you know, so you do need to be willing to draw in other things and and you know put them together. Um, and like you said, not just life hacks but like trying to synthesize these these things together in a coherent way, which is what people like uh, Cicero, who was an eclectic did. Um, he drew very heavily on the Platonist and the Aristotelian and even on the skeptics and on the Stoics. At one point he says, if I wasn't a, an academic skeptic, I would be a Stoic. You know, um, The only ones that he didn't really give much, um, he's actually quite unfair to them, is the Epicureans. But everybody beat up the Epicureans in ancient times.
0: Oh, did they? So, I always like Epicureans, but why did they beat up on him? Well, there's that,
1: you know, we were talking about this earlier, this tendency to think, um, ah, they're really just about pleasure-seeking and avoiding pain. And the Epicureans also, you know, they thought that friendship mattered, but you shouldn't be, like, politically active in your society, right? So there's a kind of withdrawal from things. Um, And I I don't know, I think everybody was a little bit standoffish with them because they're like can you really trust that epicurean you know what if the conditions change if they if they're only being virtuous because it's going to lead to pleasure they're not like the rest of us who think that virtue matters in itself and i I think it's kind of unfair myself
0: okay one school that we haven't really spoken much about yet is the skeptics right um and I, i you know as we've said with Stoicism and Epicureanism with the skeptics as well, the modern term just has a completely different connotation than the actual ancient philosophy. And so it's, it's, it's got a lot more interesting juice to it than just being skeptical.
1: Yeah. And a lot of people who use the word skeptic today, they, they wouldn't really measure up to the ancient skeptics because they're not consistent. They're skeptical about this thing over here, but then they're, they're like totally, gullible about this this other thing over here and skepticism would have to be like a more coherent um, way of living now the ancient school there there's actually like you know there you, you can call it a school but it's also it's it's got little branches you could say so you know there's this guy pyro and he has some students and then it kind of you know dies out and then you get the um Plato's Academy taking this skeptical turn, and there's like two different styles of it. There, there's the extreme skepticism that Pyro had had. Um Embodied, And then there's a more moderate skepticism that's like, listen, we, we just got to be careful. We don't know everything, um, which is more like what we were talking about at the beginning with with Socrates, right? Not saying, I don't know anything, because that itself is a knowledge claim, but saying, eh, we, we got to be careful about the, the things that we think that we know. And that goes on until the academy shifts back to Middle Platonism. Um, but then there's a revival of Pyronism. Um, and, and one of the most important people associated with that is Sextus Empiricus, who fortunately wrote a lot of books because we we learn a lot not just about the skeptics but all these other mm-hmm. philosophical schools from him because he's setting them up to knock them down. <laughs> so He's telling us things um, that uh, are, are quite valuable um, and very often quite interesting. The guy must have had an incredible range of study, you know. But his, his whole goal is to show that the, the skeptical way of life makes the most sense. And you know, actually, this is a good place to say something about that term. So uh, skepticoy doesn't originally mean like people just withdrawing and saying, I don't know anything, you don't know anything. It means seekers. And so the whole point of um, being careful about this stuff is so that we can eventually arrive at some sort of knowledge about things, not not just to be a skeptic for the sake of being a skeptic.
0: Oh, really, really well said. That's an excellent point. So I I like your point about Cicero and being an eclectic. I mean, that's I feel like we're probably all in middle ground here, and and so the. When you having a whole overview of all the different ancient philosophies i mean the chances of finding one that's going to fit you to a t i feel yeah. like it's it's kind of impossible so what's the process in choosing Ooh. what to choose from each philosophy like how, how do you go about like i like the words in in uh, epictetus which is you know to to find the to truth eliminate falsehoods and suspend judgment in dubious cases how, how do we do that
1: well that that's a big topic. Um and there isn't like a, a one set of rules for how to do it. I w- I would say a lot of it has to be experiential where you know you, you try something out and and maybe you do so without making the stakes too high like you don't invest your life savings in it necessarily. <laughs> But, you know, um, if you want to see whether there's anything to Epicureanism, you could take some of the philosophical practices and distinctions that they developed and then like try it out for a month. You know, Stoic Week was was actually which I think is going to be in its 10th year this year. That's what it originally was. Live like a Stoic for a week. See if practicing these practices and doing some readings made any difference in your life. As it turns out, we, we found out that generally it does. Um, so I think that's part of it. But you probably also need other people to call you on your nonsense. You know, it's better to do these things, not like as the isolated person who's going to figure everything out, but like, you know, talking with other people, right? Um 'Cause a lot of times we get unduly optimistic about how much these philosophies are transforming our life. So like you know, like me, I, I got into studying stoicism and also the the stuff in Aristotle because I, I struggle with anger. That's why uh, I brought it up earlier. Um, I'm not really a good judge whether I'm doing well with respect to anger. My wife is a better judge, right? And not just directed towards her, but to other people. She can be like, hey, uh, I think you're, you know, when you're talking with people, you seem to be getting kind of heated about this sort of thing. Or um, what's going on over here in social media, you know? Uh, so we, we do need that as well. Um and then, you know, it's a continual process. We, we um, find ourselves attracted to philosophical schools or movements that, that are useful for us, but we don't learn it all at once. And then we continue with it, um, sort of like building additions onto your house or, you know, decorating your house or something like that.
0: Well, and different things are going to be different are going to be applicable at different times in your life. And
1: that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: the the things that you're worried about and concerned about in your twenties aren't going to be the same ones in your fifties, aren't going to be the same ones in your eighties. You you might be worried about ambition and anger at one stage of your life and anxiety and loss at another. Um, So uh, one thing I like to to say to people with, I mean, I've said this about stoicism in particular, but I think it's good for all philosophies in, in general is that, there are tools, they're tools. I like to think of them as, is tactics. They're not mm-hmm. like, here's this one fit all solution, but in the same way you're going to need a screwdriver at some points, a hammer, at another point. The key is you never know when you're going to need a hammer or a screwdriver. So yeah. you want to, you want to fill out your toolkit in advance. So you've got it ready because you're not going to go throughout your life and never once deal with anger or loss or anxiety or depression. Like, everybody yeah. is going to experience these range of emotions and difficulties and triumphs and and so if you build out your toolkit <laughs> hopefully you'll be able to handle it when it when it occurs and there's there's
1: another i mean one thing that would Sort of like immediately suggests itself is don't be the guy, you know, that, that proverb to the person who's got a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? That's what happens when you, you have too exclusive a view. But you also don't want to have just tools that are, you know, not that useful, but look cool um i mean you can go into some people's toolboxes and you're like what what the hell is this thing what do you do with that you know and they're like well that would it be if i encountered this weird arcane situation that nobody ever does I've, i'm prepared for it well that's not particularly helpful like you said you need a screwdriver right and you basically need two kinds of screwdrivers flathead and phillips and you do need a hammer right and a measuring tape and you, you're going to need a wrench. You know, these are the things that we, we typically encounter in our lives. You don't necessarily need to have these weird things that only specialists have, you know,
0: That's very stoic too, that we have to imagine mm. when situations are going to happen to us in the future so that we're grateful, right, but right. we can also mentally prepare for them. Um, Then Now I can see why the Stoics might not like the Epicureans, because they they might not be thinking about that way. Um, Now, Greg, you've already been so generous with your time, and I'd love to finish up with, can you let us know what you're working on right now? Because you, I think, share a mission with me about uh, trying to get philosophy out there. You've done so many cool different things and different projects, so um, maybe you could tell listeners where to find you.
1: Sure. I mean, the best, I mean, I'm fortunate in that there aren't that many Gregory Sadlers out there. So if somebody types in Gregory Sadler into Google, all sorts of things will pop up. Uh my YouTube channel's probably the thing I'm best known for. And that you can find just Google Gregory B. Sadler and uh it'll it'll pop up. I have my own business called Reason.io, which stands for Reason It Out. Um I teach for Milwaukee Institute of Art and Design here in, in Milwaukee and as far as like what I'm working on, I mean, I, I edit Stoicism Today, which is a lot of fun. Um, and I'm also working on another volume, selected essays of Stoicism Today posts. And then the other th- two things that I've got sort of on the near horizon, I did a whole set of commentary videos on, on Epictetus and Caridian a while back. And I'm taking the transcripts from them and cleaning them up getting rid of all the ums and ahs and, you know, extra words and stuff like that. And I'm going to publish it as a book. Um, and then I'm also doing something that's very much outside of, you know, ancient philosophy. I'm writing a book that's intended to help pet owners make better decisions um, and and deal with some of their, their worries in end-of-life decisions for their pets because I saw the anguish that my wife went through. You know, she when we got together, she had two cats and two dogs that she had rescued, and they were what we she called her four-legged family. And, of course, they became mine just as my kids became hers, you know. And with any animal, um, unless you have a turtle or something like that, it's it's going to die before you do, most likely. And you have to make these difficult decisions like, are they, are they suffering? Should I put them to sleep now? Should they come home? W- what are we going to do? How much money should we spend? And I've noticed that people, there, there are no good guidance for it because vets will be like, well, you have to make the decision yourself, you know, or what I would do in this situation. And people feel um, a lot of anxiety and like they're letting their pet down and stuff like that. And so I just want to write a book to help people out with that. Um,
0: you know that's beautiful. I think it's wonderful that be- because you have all this knowledge and and background on on philosophy that you could take something that is just, I mean, a very everyday occurrence. I mean, not in yeah, everyday yeah. person's life. I mean, people aren't putting down their pets every day. But <laughs> thank goodness, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 That would be awkward. Um, but it's it's it is something that most people will experience in their lives. So um, yeah. it's a very applicable thing but thank you thank you again and um i will put all links down below for your youtube channel as well so everyone can find it because you do a great job going like deep dive into a lot of stuff which i think is wonderful so i know if if people are watching like classicalism speaks podcast we kind of do a lot of the first round of stuff so if you find something you're really interested in you can probably go to greg's channel and find a more in-depth continuation of the conversation
1: Well, thanks so much for having me on. This is uh, is very enjoyable.
0: Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks. Please go to classicalwisdom.substack.com to learn more about our work and to sign up for our free newsletter. To learn more about Greg Sadler, please check the links below to find his YouTube channel, articles, books, and more.